Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We're going to pick up tonight in the book of Hosea. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that Hosea is the opening book of what we often call the Minor Prophets, but is also known as the Book of the Twelve. And, and the reason why it's helpful to keep in mind that title, the Book of the Twelve, that begins with Hosea and goes to the end of your Old Testament in Malachi, is because these books seem to be, have understood as a unit, a collection, and, and not just a selection of short prophetic essays, but ones that were gathered together and even show some really interesting signs of order and organization and even editing that draws them all together. For example, there is a chain of quotations where Hosea is quoted by Joel and Joel by Micah and, and down the line. And in those quotations is an intermingling of a quotation from Jeremiah in every one. Okay, and so there's this link of quotations that flows to the book and carries things along. In the same way, the first set of books, including Hosea, are heavy in the criticizing of Israel, in the naming of crimes. Now, there's judgment, and there's hope in Hosea, but most of the book is spent explaining what Israel has done wrong. When we get to the middle of the book, there's a transition and the books begin to focus on judgment. There's still crimes and there's still hope, but it's heavy on the judgment. And when we get to the end, we start to push towards almost extensively hope. In fact, it's not a uh, mistake that the last three books of the Minor Prophet are the chronologically last as well. Okay, As the... Um, exile has drawn to a close, we find the post-exile prophets, the ones who prophesied in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, okay, at the very end of the minor prophets. But the rest of the book isn't in chronological order, but it does make sense, doesn't it, that judgment has now been done, and so there'd be a focus on hope. With that in mind, Hosea serves as an introduction to the book of the Twelve, laying out the major themes and ideas as it is the first. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, so as we will see over and over again in the Minor Prophets, the introductions are somewhat stylized, right? It tells us that this is the word that came to a man named Hosea. It tells us the name of his father. And then it lists the uh, kings as kind of historical markers for the length of his ministry. Okay. What's interesting in, in Hosea is that, as we will see, Hosea's focus is on the northern kingdom, also known as Israel, also in Hosea known as Ephraim. 
But when the introduction is given here, it gives us the reigns of six Judean, southern kingdom kings, and only mentions one king from the northern kingdoms. And that's not because these reigns are contemporary. Jeroboam, and that's Jeroboam II, um, not the one who, who takes over in the days of Rehoboam when Solomon's kingdom splits in two. Jeroboam's role is relatively, or his reign is relatively short. And so he's just thrown in here as a token and the other kings are used for the timeline. And one of the things that that does is it helps us bridge Hosea to a post-Israel world. You see, Hosea starts ministering in the days of Jeroboam here and in six kings, no more Israel. And those kings serve so rapid fire, one assassination after another, that it's only 30 years, starting in the days of Hosea to the end of Israel being sacked by Assyria. Okay. And so those kings, the kings of Judah, carry us past that line, and we'll see that Hosea's ministry is focused on the northern kingdom, but he does have some things to say to the southern kingdom. Now you may remember that when we talked about Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we pointed out that the prophets are arranged in such a way where in the beginning are the prophecies that were both given and proven true in their lifetime. And what follows is the prophecies that looked beyond their life. In other words, the front ones are given as validations of their prophetic ministry, and then the ones that you should still be looking towards follow after. And so Hosea operates as a bridge, speaking of and seeing the judgment come upon Israel, the northern tribes, but also having some words that are still to come for Judah. Now the second thing, before we get rolling here, the first three chapters of Hosea focus very heavily on his relationship with his wife and his three children. Like Ezekiel before him, when God came to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, I'm going to kill your wife. Here, Hosea becomes a living parable. He is not just a prophet, he is a prophetic message incarnate. So the opening of the book here leans very heavily into the history or the biography of Hosea to give us a template, an understanding, a picture, uh, a theme, if you will, um, that he's going to tie to God and his people. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by, by forsaking the Lord. Okay, and so notice here, God calls Hosea to take a wife, and specifically here it says that she's to be a wife of whoredom or prostitution. Now, when it goes on and says, have children of whoredom, and as we'll see uh, later, Hosea will deal with the spirit of prostitution. Significantly here, the idea is going to come down to idolatry. Okay. The picture that is being painted is of an unfaithful Israel, and so Hosea is commanded to marry an unfaithful wife. Now, when we look at the story as a whole, the details are lacking, but it appears here that Hosea doesn't go down to the red light district and then drop on one knee and offer a ring to a woman. Instead, the woman he marries is married to him, but has a whorish bent. OK? 
okay? She's prone to unfaithfulness. In other words, Hosea is told up front that he's going to marry a woman who won't be faithful to him, okay? That's the command that God gives. So verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So they're married. She is pregnant. She has a child. Verse 4, he's given another command. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay. Now, here he's given a, uh, a name to call his son by, and the name is Prophetic. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. We see this actually in Isaiah's life as well. He names his kids at God's order as living prophecies, living reminders. Second thing I want you to notice here is unlike his sister uh, and his younger brother, Jezreel's not actually a bad name. Okay? Uh, Jezreel means God sows. Okay? Uh, it's a planting metaphor. But he's not named for an idea, he's named for a place, okay? Jezreel speaks of the Jezreel Valley, okay? And that is where the prophetic part kicks in, okay? Now, it should be worth pointing out that Jezreel is well named as a valley. It is one of the great breadbaskets of the nation of Israel. And if you go there today and you go up on Mount Carmel and look over the Valley of Jezreel, or if you go to Tel Megiddo, okay, the city in Jezreel, and you look out, all you see everywhere is farmland. And so calling it the valley of the God who sows is appropriate. But notice here the emphasis. It says, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, here is the first lesson I want to teach you about the minor prophets. They are very difficult to understand unless you get good at Israel's history. Okay. We often think that the prophets are inaccessible because they're so poetic or because they're so esoteric, because they're so full of symbolism. No, the reason the prophets are really difficult is because they're so historical. Okay. And so it's always helpful to read the prophets keeping either 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles open. Now, there is one little trick I'll teach you right now which is really helpful, and I want you to ask this question every time we open to a new minor prophet. There are three major ages that the prophets speak in, and just knowing which age the prophet is in will improve your ability to read it tenfold. Here they are. Before the exile, during the exile, after the exile. Okay. Now Hosea is a before-the-exile prophet, in fact, we can add a little bit more detail. He's not just before the exile of Judah, but before the exile of Israel. Okay, so before Assyria attacks Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes, and takes them into captivity, Hosea's ministry starts. Okay, he's a pre-exile prophet. So, he's pre-exile, but what is this about the house of Jehu? If you go back and read, starting all the way back in 1 Kings you'll encounter a very wicked king by the name of Ahab. Ahab, uh, and Ahab's life spans the prophetic ministries of Elijah, with a J, and his student Elisha, OK? 
okay? And Ahab is from a dynasty of kings that begin with King Omri, okay? So we call it the Omride dynasty, okay? The Omride dynasty from beginning to end is wicked, but the pinnacle of it is with King Ahab. And so after Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal, after Jezebel threatens his life and he escapes out into the wilderness and he goes before the Lord, God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the house of Ahab and I'm going to do it through three means. One, you're going to go anoint a new king in Syria. Two, you're going to anoint a new replacement for you named Elijah. And three, you're going to anoint the destroyer Jehu. Okay. And so Jehu is chosen to bring judgment on the house of Ahab, and he does so. And because of that, he becomes the new king of the northern tribes in Israel. And Jehu, and this is the words that 2 Kings uses, wages war on Baal, right? The cult of Baal. He seeks to decimate and destroy it and does a pretty good job. But he's not a perfect person. And because of the way he lives out his role, he does wickedness in the sight of the Lord. His son does wickedness in the sight of the Lord. His grandson does wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And so even in 2 Kings, in the days of Jehu, God says, you're only going to reign until the fourth generation. Okay? That is what is being picked up on here. The fulfillment of that promise. That's why he says, in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Okay. And I will put to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, those two things are separate things. One is the dynasty. Jehu's family line is no longer going to rule. But then when it says, I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, that's the nation. Right? Do you see the difference there? After the death of... Um, well, let's actually just go ahead and look at it. Let's look at the fulfillment here um, in 2 Kings 15. And yes, we're turning here because I've already hit my quota of how many Israel kings I can keep in my brain. So we're going to cheat on this last one and read it. Yeah, it is Zechariah. Okay, so look here at 2 Kings 15, verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, that's the same Jeroboam in the opening verse of Hosea, okay, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. Okay, here's another lesson for you tonight. When you're reading through First and Second Kings and you see a king who only rules for six months, brace for something climax, for something awful to happen. Usually it's a sign of great wickedness uh, and then destruction. So he reigns in six months and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done, again, that's Jeroboam, Jeroboam's dad, and then Jehu, his grandfather. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibleam and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they're written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And then notice the parenthetical here. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel in the fourth generation, and it shall come to pass. So, going back to Hosea, in the days of Jeroboam, 
He says, Jezreel is just around the corner. In my son's lifetime, the reign of Jehu and his family will come to an end. But then he says, so also, so also will the whole kingdom of the northern tribes. So also will all of Israel. And as I mentioned to you, six kings follow Zechariah after that six-month reign. Six kings, each one of them struck down in cold blood, and in total they served for about 30 years. Okay. So in just a generation, before, before Jezreel dies of old age, Israel will be destroyed. That is the prophecy here. And notice here, verse 5, And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So notice here, now it's not just about Jezreel the name. Now it's about where it's going to happen. It will happen in the valley of Jezreel. Okay. In fact, this is exactly where the big battle goes down uh, during the Syrophoenician War when Assyria finally wins out and Israel is destroyed. It happens here. And that's not surprising because all the major battles happen in Jezreel. Okay. Barak and Deborah, that's the valley of Jezreel. Okay, um, a whole bunch more. In fact, you know the valley of Jezreel by another name. It's also known as the valley of Megiddo, or in Greek, Har Megiddo. It's where we get our word Armageddon. Okay, this is a significant place of battle throughout the history of the Bible and longer because it marks the center of the two major roads that move through Egypt, from Egypt to Damascus and through Israel, okay? And so it is a constant place of battle. If you go to the Tell of Megiddo, which is basically a hill made out of civilizations built one on top of another, there are 22 different cities there. That's how many times this place has been sacked and rebuilt, okay? But it's going to go down there in the valley of Jezreel, okay? So notice... If we wanted to give a nickname to little Jezreel here, it's judgment. That's his name, and that's his significance. Now notice verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Okay, I'm going to read that again. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and then I want you to go back, and I want you to look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblim, and she conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, Okay. She conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, but in 6 it says, she conceived again and bore a daughter, not bore him a daughter. Commentators believe that this may be a subtle clue that this second child is not Hosea's. Remember the type of woman he was supposed to take as a wife? A wife who would be unfaithful to him. And we'll see in this child, as well as in the third child, no reference of to him. So it's her daughter, it's her son, but it's not Hosea's. In fact, notice the name that God gives for this daughter. She conceived again, verse 6, and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Okay. If we were to translate this into a name for a daughter, how about unpitied? That's the name of this daughter. Okay. I will have no mercy. Okay. It's, it, you've probably met a mercy in your life. 
probably haven't met a no mercy. Okay. It sounds like, you know, a, a sidekick for the punisher. Um, and so it is a message of judgment, but think of it again. This is the daughter who's not his daughter, and he calls her unpitied. Okay. It's strong language here. And God gives the reason. He says, because I'm done extending my patience with Israel. I'm done showing mercy to Israel. And then notice in contrast, verse 7, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, if we keep reading Hosea, God is going to run out for mercy or of mercy for Judah as well. Eventually, Judah is destroyed almost a hundred years later by Babylon. But at this point, he makes a distinction. You I will not have mercy on. Judah I will. And then notice, he says that he's going to save them, and he's not going to do it by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, here's what happens in history. Assyria does come. In the 700s, 722 B.C., I believe, Syria rushes in, destroys Samaria, sacks all of the northern tribes, deports them to Assyria. But what do they do next? They attack Judah, the southern tribes. In fact, they have some success. They get all the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded. This is in the days of King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah prays that God would have mercy and deliver him, and he does so. But he does not use horses or horsemen or bow or sword. In fact, God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah and he says, don't worry, God's going to take care of all of this without your help. And in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 soldiers. And so in the morning, the army is decimated and Assyria goes home. And so that's here what Hosea is saying would happen, and that's what came to pass. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Notice again the lacking to him. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Okay. Again, a negative name, but also one of significance in Hosea's own life. It's as if he says, not my child, right? In other words, this language here is, is language of disowning. It's language of distance. No longer my child. It's the, it's the family version of divorce, right? I'm disowning you. 4 verse 2 says, You are not my people, and I am not your God. Now that language is going to come back, but I want you to recognize that that's a reversal of the covenant language. All the way back in Exodus chapter 6, as God lays out the reason why he's delivering this particular people from Egypt, he says, I'm going to bring you out, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And if you keep reading through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you read closely in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you'll see that phrase over and over again. That is the language of the covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. In fact, it parallels the marriage language of the book of Song of Songs. My beloved is mine, and I am his. In fact, many people believe, because we're going to come back to this in chapter 2, 
that this is really close to the traditional Jewish marriage vows. You are my wife. I am your husband. And so here, when he says, you are not my people and I am not your God, it's like reverse vows. It's like the language of divorce. Now we're reaching beyond the historical evidence here, but many commentators suspect that this is exactly the language that would be used to officiate a divorce. If you will, you are no longer my wife. I am no longer your husband. And as we'll see, that gets pretty intense. In fact, the next time we see Hosea's wife, it's after separation. It's after, apparently, a divorce. And so all of this language is contained in this, but remember, God is not bringing judgment on Hosea's wife. He's just illustrating the judgment to come on the northern tribes through Hosea's marriage. So the message here is judgment, judgment, judgment. Judgment on the house of Jehu and the kingdom of Israel. No more mercy, not my people. And then notice the reversal in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the language of Exodus. But your people, your children will be like the sands of the sea. That's the language of Genesis. I will be God, you will be my people. That's the language of the covenant with Moses. But this is the language of the covenant with Abraham. But do you see how they're moving in opposite directions? How is it no mercy and destruction and an innumerable multitude of children? How is it not my child? And it's all my children, right? There's a reversal here. In fact, notice verse uh, 10 continues. And in this place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to disown you. And then I'm going to adopt you again. Okay. Verse 11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay, so notice what he says. He says, Judah and Israel are going to have a shared fate. In fact, they're going to be reunified. They shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. Not a king of Israel and a king of Judah anymore. The division that goes all the way back to the generation after Solomon will be resolved. They'll be unified, and they'll be under one king. Now, we'll come back to him. But notice the reversal in the last sentence. They shall go up from the land. Side note, the language there is literally, and they shall come up from the land, which is uh, grammatically the exact opposite of being buried. It's resurrection language. But it's that last phrase I want to draw your attention to. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now the last time we saw Jezreel, it was a statement of judgment. It was a bloodbath. But here it's a play on its name, right? The God who sows. Now when we hear Jezreel, it as a name is a little bit ambiguous. Because God sows two things. Life and death. Judgment and mercy. And what we see here in the first chapter of Hosea is it's going to be judgment and then mercy. Right? 
And so the great harvest of Jezreel that will come after the great destruction of Jezreel will be even greater. It reminds us of what Paul says when he says, where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Okay. And so first, Hosea says, you are not my people. You will not receive mercy. And he says, but after that, you will be my people and receive mercy. This cadence of judgment to hope is repeated over and over again in Hosea. Even tonight, we're going to go through this cycle a few more times. It's jarring. It's surprising. It makes you wonder if God is capricious or just, you know, flies off the handle and then regrets it. You know, like the, like the bad parent who, you know, um, who yells at their kids on the car ride home and then goes, let's go get ice cream, right? Because they're just trying to balance the scales. But as we'll see, it's so consistent here what it is, is just the fact that God's judgment actually stems from his love. His plan is not defeated by the sins of Israel. He will deal with those and then do more. All right, so as we open up in verse 2 here, here's the image I want you to get. It's not stated. We move out of the biography here. If you will, we move from earth to heaven. We move from Hosea and Gomer's relationship to God and Israel's relationship. But nonetheless, clearly the language here is the language of the divorce court. So notice here in verse 2, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Plead with her that she would put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Okay. Again, that language, she is not my wife and I am not her husband, commentators believe is, is the divorce language. And so it's as if God here is serving papers to Israel. Now, Jeremiah uses this language as well. And he actually uses it in a different way. He says, effectively, God is not going to divorce Israel, even though he should. But the picture is different in Hosea. The picture is God will divorce Israel, but that's not the end of the story. Okay. But ultimately here, the language is of recognizing the sins of Israel. And so, if you will, this is not a divorce as much as it is an ultimatum. Right? Plead with your mom, kids. She's making a choice right now. Are you going to go off with your other lovers or are you going to stay at home with your kids and your husband? That's the idea here. Verse 3, If she doesn't, then I will strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, make her like a wilderness and a parched land and kill her with thirst. Now, usually the consequence, according to the Mosaic Covenant, for adultery is death by stoning. But the consequences here don't look like that at all. Again, make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land, kill her with thirst. Why? It's because he's talking about Israel as a nation. And Israel isn't just a nation, it's a land, the promised land. 
And so he's, if you will, changing metaphors here, and he says, I am going to desolate Israel. I'm going to make it a wilderness instead of a paradise. Now, as, as we'll see, it's because the paramours, the lovers of Israel in this story, is the Baals, okay? this family of Canaanite gods. Now, what are they known for? Two things. Fertility in the bedroom and fertility in the field. Okay? Baal is the storm god. He's the one who brings the weather. And when you pray to Baal, he brings uh, rain and that gives bumper crops. But Israel was supposed to know that all they had was provided by God. And given not because they went through the right rituals or anything, but because God built abundance into the world. That's why Israel's festivals don't come before the sowing of the seed to beg God for a bumper harvest. They come after to thank him for his provision. And so the idea here is one of this nation of Israel and specifically the land going through a drought, deteriorating in its ability to give food. And notice, basically, as we'll see in just a second, Israel takes all the good things that God gives it and says, thanks, Baal. And God goes, well, let me show you how impotent Baal is. And he pulls back and doesn't give them anything. Cry to Baal all you want. See if he'll help you now. So, verse 4. Upon her children I will also have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Okay. All the resources come from my lovers. They're the ones who provide for me. And he goes, prove it. I'm no longer going to provide. Again, put it in the language of the divorce court. I'm no longer going to cover your bills. You're no longer going to live at our house. You're no longer going to have access to our pantry or our clothing closet. That's the idea here. You are now on your own. If they love you so much, let's see them take care of you the way that I have. Now, at this point, it's really easy to see that God has chosen a tremendously intimate metaphor for his relationship with Israel. The relationship of husband and wife. And Hosea gets right on the edge of talking about this in even sexual terms. That's how intimate it is. He never comes out and says it, but he's talking about this intimate, physically sexual, loving relationship. In fact, Hosea is the most relational revelation of God in the Old Testament. When you open your Bible and you open up Genesis 1, you read about the God who created the heavens and the earth, and the name for God there is Elohim. But as soon as you turn to the next page and get to Genesis 2, it starts to refer to him as Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay? Jehovah, according to Exodus 6, is God's covenant name. It's his relational name. It's used 46 times in the 12 chapters of the book of Hosea. More than any other prophet, including the big ones. Not only that, but Elohim occurs 22 times on top of that, and 18 of those have a personal pronoun, okay? A personal possessive pronoun. So not just God generically, my God, our God. It also is filled with the word love. 
the majority of the times it's used, it's used of the lovers. It's used of Israel's wrong, lustful love for bad things. Okay. Because just like in English, in Hebrew, you can love at all sorts of levels. You can love your wife, you can love Sundays, you can love an ice cream Sunday, right? We can use the word very broadly. And so the contrast between these two things, God's faithful and unending love and this capricious, whore-like love of Israel is put in contrast. And so he says, I'm going to not give you the things that you need anymore. I'm going to withhold. And if you go back and you read Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, these are the covenant curses. If you are unfaithful, if you do not obey me, your crops will fail. Okay. But notice as it continues here, verse 6, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Okay. And so he says, I'm going to make the way that she's trod you know, to these paramours' houses hard, hidden. I'm going to make it so that you go looking for, you know, these hookups, but it won't actually work. I'm going to close your paths. Then, verse 7, she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Now, that's not very romantic, is it? Now that there's no alternatives... Now that she can't get to all of her lovers, she goes, well, I might as well go back to the first husband. Right? It's similar to the language of the young son in Jesus' parable, who goes and squanders everything he lives on prodigal living. And as he's sitting, as he sold himself into slavery, wishing he could eat as well as the pigs that he's feeding, he goes, I'm going to go back to my father. Even the servants eat better than that. But it doesn't really speak very highly of his father, because the choice is, sit in the mud with the pigs or go home. C.S. Lewis deals with this idea and he calls it God's divine humility. That he's willing to save us when our ship is sinking. The truth is, God has always been the loving and faithful provider of Israel. The truth is, he has always outstripped these other lovers. The truth is, he's always been the only one who is worthy of worship. And they were unwilling to recognize it until there was no other option. But God is so humble that he responds to that. Verse 8, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Just like back in Exodus, when they took the gold that God had so graciously worked in the hearts of the Egyptians to give them as they left. You know, here are the people who have owned them, flesh and bone. And they're just about to leave Israel, and they come and they say, here, take our jewelry. And when they get into the wilderness, the God who delivered them is forgotten. While Moses is up the mountain, and they take that jewelry, and they melt it down, and they turn it into a golden calf. And Aaron says, there's your God. There's the God who brought you up out of Egypt. This is generations and generations, hundreds of years later, and yet it's the same impulse we find in Israel. 
Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. And I'll put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I'll lay waste her vines, her figs, of which she said, These are my wages, which the lovers have given me. I'll make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I'll punish her for the feast days of Baals, when she, retur- when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now again, we sometimes aren't very well equipped for messages of judgment, but it's helpful here to envision God as an abandoned husband. Right? It's helpful here to see God's jealousy for Israel like the jealousy of a husband. I'll be honest with you. I am jealous for my wife's attention, and I will be upset if she gives it to another man, and rightly so. That's where God is coming from here. And when he says, and forgot me, declares the Lord, you should hear then that two different things. One is, how do you forget the God who gave you everything? Right? At this point, we've studied all the way from Genesis to Hosea. We've seen God's constant faithful provision. They are in the land of Israel because God brought them out of Egypt and gave it to them. They are in the land of Israel and have security because God gave them victory over their enemies. They are enjoying all of these things and all of these feasts and festivals because God has appointed them. And why did God make them throw a party? To spend time with them. To fellowship with them. Effectively, what he says here is, I scheduled all of these date nights and you spent them chatting with the guy at the next table. It is appropriate to understand that God's heart is grieved by Israel's behavior. And that's why he chooses this very pictorial situation in Hosea to lay bare his own heart. And the other way that you should think about this is to think about it in terms um, of Israel trying to get it. Right? Israel is made up of men with wives. And so this picture is like, what if it were you, right? It's, let's put the shoe on the other foot. It's, let's develop a little bit of empathy here. Let's think about what this would be like. And he goes, all right, you want to know how you've treated me? This is what it's like. All right, so again, we have this court scene, and we see God taking steps, you know, cutting up the credit card, things like that. But then notice verse 14. Therefore, behold, what is he going to do? I will allure her. Or if you have an older word, it's seduce her. Okay. Now there's another word that we generally only use in a negative term today. But that's really uh, in its original word in English, as well as here in Hebrew. It's just tremendously intimate. Okay. Seduction is an appropriate thing in a particular context. But that's not what we expect to find in the divorce court. Here, there's this pivot from, from the courtroom to courting, right? You're expecting him to say, therefore, I will abandon her forever. And he says, therefore, I will allure her, and I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Okay. 
So notice there's a two-part stage here. First, I'm going to pull the rug out from under her so she can see that her gods that she's worshipping are empty. I'm going to make these lovers who speak, you know, uh, sweet nothings into her ear in the middle of the night. I'm going to say, all right, you really love her? Care for her. Provide for her. Protect her. Take care of her. I'm going to show them for what they are, and then I'm going to remind her who I am. And notice here he's going to do it in the wilderness. What is that? That's a return to the honeymoon. Right? That's where God got to know Israel. That's where Israel came to understand who God was. It's also a place, by the way, where, where Baal can't function. The wilderness is not a place where they're going to sow into the ground and reap. It's the place where manna falls from heaven. And where God's appointed prophet strikes the rock and water comes out. Right? And so he's going to get her alone. And he's going to allure her. And then notice verse 15. And there, in the wilderness, I will give her vineyards. And I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Remember what I said about historical? What's the significance of the valley of Achor? Okay, so after the wilderness, Israel comes into the land for the first time. And the valley of Achor is where Jericho is. And specifically, it's the place where Achan is killed. You see, in the very beginning, as Israel comes into the land, after God gives them this amazing victory in Jericho, one man named Achan doesn't keep the rules. Everything in that city was to be devoted to God. Every animal killed, all the gold and silver given to God, everything but he decides to keep some for himself, and he buries it in his tent. And because of God's displeasure with that sin, they attack the next city of Ai, and they're driven back, and a bunch of people die. And Achan's sin comes to light, and he and his family are stoned to death, and their corpses are burned. It's intense. Do you see how that kind of ended the honeymoon? The last time they came out of the wilderness into the valley of Achor, it was rough. Okay. But here, he says it's going to be a door of hope. It's going to be a story that continues. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. There she will speak to me as she did at first. Now, it's very easy for us to read this and be like, you know, like silly Israel, stubborn Israel, foolish Israel, awful Israel. But there's a reason why this inclination in the days of Hosea is the same as the Jews gathered around Mount Sinai, right? It's, there's a reason why there's a generational consistency here. It's not an Israel problem, it's a human problem. In fact, this danger exists for us in the church. In the book of Revelation, Jesus delivers a message to seven churches. And in one of them, in chapter 2, he uses language just like this. Listen to how similar this language is. He's writing here to the church in Ephesus. Right? Ephesus has an amazing history. It's a church planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy. Right? He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found to be false. 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. He says, you're still faithful. You're still living at home. You're still doing the dishes. You don't love me like you did at first. And then notice what he says in verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Right? It's the same thing. Go back to the beginning. Spend time with me the way you used to. Pray to me the way you used to. Seek me in my word the way you used to. Go back and do the first things. Go back to the honeymoon. But remember here, this is God's plan. He doesn't just say, look, I'm just going to wait over here, and when you get your act together, we can talk. He pursues her. He goes after her. We'll see more of that in just a second. But we need to remember here that the way we get to a faithful Israel is through the faithfulness of God. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Okay, now that sounds super weird, but let me explain. The word Baal is a name for God, but it's also just a generic word that means master or lord or husband. Okay. And so the idea, you know, what it makes me think of, forgive me if this is graphic, but it's as if she's gotten in the habit of crying out the wrong name when they're intimate, right? That's what it makes me think of. But he's saying something more significant than that. He's not just saying, then you will only have eyes for me. He's saying, I'm going to eradicate the Baal cult so extensively that it's just going to leave the vocabulary. And even the non-technical, generic versions of the word that have nothing to do with idolatry, even those won't be around. I'm going to change your vocabulary. Verse 17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they'll be remembered by name no more. See? It's just not going to be part of the language. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Okay, so he, he promises them protection in two directions. From wild animals and from enemies. Okay. Verse 19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Okay, two things here. First, notice the language of betrothal there. That's the language of engagement. And so, like I said, the, the way that this is pictured is as if God puts Israel out. He divorces her. And here they remarry. Here the relationship is restored. Second, he says, I'm going to do this in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. Usually when you would go through the betrothal practice, there would be a betrothal fee, if you will. Okay? There would be money exchanged. But God's not interested in Israel's money. What he's interested in is their faithfulness. And what's really interesting here is the way this language is, is put, it's as if God is the husband and the father. Because that's what would normally happen. 
it would be the, uh, the father who pays the betrothal fee. He says, but, but I'm going to take care of all of this, and you really will be righteous and just and steadfast in love and mercy and faithful, and you shall know the Lord. Verse 21, in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. I want you to notice the connections between those things. God speaks to the heavens. The heavens speak to the earth. The earth speaks to the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they all say together, Jezreel. The idea here is one of a weather cycle. Okay. And so he's going to speak to the heavens, let it rain. And the rain is going to nourish the earth. And it's going to cause the grain to grow. Right? It's of a completed cycle of provision here. And they shall answer, God is the one who sows, Jezreel. And then notice here, and I will sow her for myself in the land. So now we've seen Jezreel three times over. Jezreel judgment. Jezreel, I'm going to make you a multitude. And here, Jezreel, I will be the sower. I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And then he shall say, you are my God. Okay. And so God is going to bring about judgment, but he's also going to bring about redemption. And when he does too, it will stabilize his people's faithfulness. All right. So chapter two moves completely away from the biographical history. Hosea and Gomer and his children, they kind of fall into the background. But in chapter 3, they're brought forward again. Okay? In doing this, we get kind of a chiastic structure. A beginning, a middle, and an end where the beginning and the end go together. And the meaning's in the middle. Okay? Uh, and it serves as the introduction to the rest of the book. Okay? So we're not going to find Hosea's name again after chapter 3. And what we're going to find mostly in chapters 4 and on are these oracles, the messages. But it's this very personal and intimate and difficult happening in Hosea's life that frames everything that is to come. So as we go on in weeks and weeks, we'll try and not forget this, because this is the foundation. But look here in chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. Okay, I want you to listen again for that language, that love language. Go again and Hosea, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. And then notice verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leshep of barley. Why does he have to buy her? As is often the case, prostitution leads to slavery. And so she has gone so full bore into this life that she's been enslaved and is now not just um, you know, sexually active, but has become someone's sexual property. 
like the prodigal son from Jesus' parable, she gets everything she wants and finds it wanting. She thinks that she's finally free from that oppressive husband, and instead she finds slavery. And so here, Hosea comes to the woman that he married, the woman that he fathered a child with, the woman who's unfaithful, and so he gave her up to everything she wanted, and he finds her in chains. He finds her enslaved. And he pays to set her free. God's plan for restoration involves freedom. So he buys her, verse 3, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Okay, he, he restores her and pledges her to faithfulness. He says, this story is over. Now it's just my home. Now I'm just your husband. And then notice verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Now it may be, the language is a little imprecise here, but it may be in verse 3 when he says, you will not belong to another man, so will I also be to you. That what he's saying is, we're also not going to be sleeping together. In other words, he doesn't consummate this restored relationship. Not yet. She enters into a time of chastity. And so does he. And that helps us make sense of what it says in verse 4 when he says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without a sacrifice or a pillar, without an ephod or household gods. Half the language there is at least religiously neutral, if not positive. Sacrifice, priest, ephod, all of that stuff is just part of Israel's worship. It's how they engaged with and interacted intimately with God. But when they go into Assyria, it's all on hold. There is no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifice. There's also no Baals. In fact, it's in Babylon that Israel learns how to maintain their distinction as the people of God without falling into the religious worship around them. But he says here, basically, I'm going to detox you. Right? You're going to go into rehab. You're going to recover from your sexual addiction. And I'm going to walk that road with you in total abstinence and then verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now earlier it was just they were going to appoint a head. Here, it's David their king. And again, as we've seen throughout the prophets here, this is a stand-in for the son of David, for the Messiah, for the anointed one who was promised in Second Samuel chapter 7, the one who would come after David, the one who would reign eternally. And so... Verse 5 here is eschatological. It looks towards the last things. It looks for the end thing. And it says here, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so here he says, I'm going to set things right. And we get just a hint here that it's going to have something to do with the son of David. The way that God is going to bring this about, yes, he's going to restore them to the land, but he's also going to fulfill his promises. And that's so staggering. It's so striking. 
Because remember, the whole history of Hosea is one of unfaithfulness. God promises all these things to Israel. Israel pledges all these things to God in response. Israel keeps none of them. And so God brings consequences, but he does not abandon the promises. He's still faithful to them. He's still committed. He comes up with this, you know, strategic workaround, stereo over the head, last-ditch proclamation of love effort to restore the relationship. And we know even better. Because when the Son of David does come, he doesn't come in power, but in weakness. He doesn't come in recognition, but in misunderstanding. He doesn't come conquering the enemies, but surrendering and bearing the sins of Israel. You see, it's in Jesus that God is both faithful to the covenant on God's behalf and faithful to the covenant on our behalf. And so here, Hosea is looking down the pike to the latter days and he sees this restoration coming. And all we can call it is grace. All we can call it is redemption. All we can call it is a demonstration of God's love. John says it this way. By this we know love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message of Hosea. And as we'll continue to see in the weeks to come, he'll build on that message. He'll make it specific. And he'll also bring it even higher to a greater climax. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love that is unrelenting, committed to us even when we are not committed, faithful to us even when we are unfaithful, seeking us even when we are running, the love that died for us even while we were in rebellion against you. We pray, God, that we would come to see you as the husband you truly are and that our response would be one of entering into all that you have for us and giving you all of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.